Hey, Joel here. This is Dining Around. Well, we're here today at Yang Sing Restaurant in San Francisco. And, um, well, let me back up a little bit. I was fortunate enough to interview a gentleman by the name of Jacques Pepin. Many of you may have heard of the interview. I hope so. And during that interview, he made reference to something. He said, I chose, uh, instead of working at the White House, to work for Howard Johnson. And I politely laughed. But I hadn't a clue what he said, and I really should have followed up with it. And then I received a copy of a book that I got to delve into and really enjoy myself while reading and, and, and just following along what was going on. And we're joined now by the author. His name is Paul Friedman. He is a professor at Yale. He's an author. He's a very charming individual. And his book is 10 Restaurants That Changed America, and it's published by Norton. Thanks for joining us today. I'm delighted to be here, Joel. Thank you. Listen, let's let's start with this whole idea of, of choice, of the 10 restaurants. Why did you choose these specific 10 restaurants? These restaurants I chose for influence, not quality, or not the 10 best restaurants that America ever produced, but 10 restaurants that I thought influenced various trends that have made restaurant culture in America today. Right. So it includes great restaurants like Chez Panisse that... Uh, are in the forefront of culinary quality, or mm -hmm. Antoine's in New Orleans, or Delmonico's in New York, but also Howard Johnson's, where Jacques Pepin worked, which had nice food, middle-class food, mass-market food, because it influenced so much of how we eat today. And these stories and the information that you have within the book, to me, it is a, it is a history, but also it is incredibly engrossing, because you, you say things and you comment on social history at the time. The idea of when women could not dine in a restaurant without being escorted by a gentleman, or that it was not regular for that, or the, the rise of Chinese cuisine in the United States. All of those aspects that bring us today to a restaurant like Chez Panisse and beyond. Or a restaurant like uh, Yang Sing, where we are now. Exactly. So I think it is a way of looking at American history, mm -hmm. a way of looking at the history of American society. Restaurants are places where people gather. They're places of romance, business, friendship, celebration. They're also places that express a kind of class, ethnic, immigration mm -hmm. system. And I didn't set out to do a work of American history. I was interested in food and restaurants, <laughs> but I think it at least has some implications for American history. And there really is a personality driven when it comes to this history. I know it sounds like I'm flipping on the side here, but the idea of a chef coming to the United States during the World's Fair and cooking at a French pavilion restaurant and then it becoming a mainstay of French cuisine in the United States. A lot of these stories are amazing and some of them involve people who are immigrants, some of them involve people who might be considered internal immigrants like Sylvia Woods, the mm -hmm. founder of Sylvia's in Harlem, who came from South Carolina and who created a cuisine of the South that received a lot of attention and adulation in the North. Mm -hmm. So yes, each of these personalities have a certain vision of what they want to cook, not necessarily the cuisine that they grew up with, Often it's a cuisine adopted mm -hmm. to American taste. Well, let's talk a little bit about, about Sylvia's as an example. I mean, Sylvia's being a restaurant that is in a location or was in a location in Harlem that, well, that has now become this sort of renaissance neighborhood. It's an area where Marcus Samuelson is, where so many restaurants are now sort of, and people are flocking to. 
it is right next to Marcus Samuelson's Red Rooster, or Red Rooster is right next to it. Sylvia's is fascinating. It was founded in 1962. It was very successful within Harlem. It was a, always a community center. Politicians felt they had to go there during elections, sports figures, mm -hmm. entertainment figures, but it was almost unknown or barely known to white New York okay. until really towards the end of the 20th century. So the renaissance that's been taking place in Harlem was preceded by many decades of a kind of peculiar isolation in mm -hmm. which it was as if it was a part of the map that was blank from the point of view of a lot of downtown white New Yorkers. Right, and you even referenced in the book, I think it was Gail Green, who who would not have normally had that restaurant on her on her beat as far as restaurant criticism goes. When she reviewed it in the 1970s, her editor at New York Magazine wondered if it wasn't a bad idea because weren't they encouraging their readers to do something dangerous, mm -hmm. i.e. go to Harlem? They're presumably white readers. And she says she sort of agreed. She mm -hmm. considered it to be like uh, uh, a, a, an expedition. It was very hard to get a taxi willing to take her to Harlem. Right. Uh, she expected somehow to be the object of uh, hatred immediately upon stepping outside the taxi. Instead, she was welcomed by Sylvia mm -hmm. with a hug. She had a great time. Uh, she got back, no problem. But she reports this as if it was uh, extraordinary. Right. But that is part of the, the context that is so fascinating each time in each era and each generation that I find, at least, with throughout the book. When, when I read passages and say, hold it, this was not de rigueur. It, 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 it was a certain way that people did things at that time, and now it's moving forward. And I think that we need to remember those things. You mentioned a restaurant lockover very, very briefly in the book and a number of other restaurants as well. But the idea of, of not being able to dine in a restaurant because of one's gender or who you choose to associate with. And then the reaction to that, the one of the restaurants, uh, Shrouse, that came about, is Shrouse, is it not? That's right. That came about where women and people could dine without alcohol or people could dine in that milieu. Or could dine without a male escort. Right. So it was not that women weren't allowed in restaurants, usually lockovers being an exception, uh, women were quite welcome. In fact, a lot of descriptions of society dinners or fancy restaurants like Delmonico's mm -hmm. dwell on the beautiful jewelry of the women and uh, their beauty. But their beauty had to be protected by a male escort. Otherwise, right. there was a suspicion that they were prostitutes or there was a great concern to separate respectable from non-respectable right. women. So women in a group uh, might not be seated. And uh, Schraft's was a restaurant that began around 1900, which not only served women alone or women who were shopping together or women who worked in offices, but it tried to tailor its food to what was regarded as women's tastes. And right. women's tastes in food were thought to be, on the one hand, light food for mm -hmm. the entrees, and then fancy desserts, <laughs> ice cream, sundaes, that sort of thing. And yeah, you make the argument that, that that may not have been true at that point, even though they were serving this clientele or this, this sort of concept of a menu, that that may not have actually been true. Well, certainly not for all women, but they succeeded with this concept for 80 years or so. And I do remember my grandmother, who took me to Schraft's, fell into this category. My grandmother liked to order cottage cheese and fruit, that sort of thing, which Ugh. was regarded as light uh, <laughs> in, say, 1960. 
and then follow it up with a Sunday or a banana split. So my mother, <laughs> however, wouldn't go to Schraff's because she considered it for people like my grandmother, right. uh, ladies of leisure, ladies who like shopping, mm-hmm. uh, and my mother was a rather more serious and professional character. When I first started reading a couple of those passages, I thought ladies who lunch, and I immediately thought, well, you didn't say ladies who lunch, but I was thinking of ladies who lunch and immediately thought this would definitely be a boozy chapter, but it wasn't even close to that. I had the no. absolute wrong impression. No, although later on, Schrath's did have uh, alcohol. But Ladies Who Lunch, to me, conveys a kind of wealthy uh, lady of leisure who's uh, um, either independently wealthy or whose husband is some sort of banker. This would be more middle class in keeping with the mid-century mm-hmm. in which there was a larger middle class than there is now. So mm-hmm. wealthy ladies wouldn't dine at Schrath's, truly wealthy ladies. It would be uh, women who were in easy enough circumstances maybe not to have to work, although as I said, some of them might be women who worked in shops or uh, in offices. So it was not an expensive restaurant. It was really tailored to a middle class client but to a respectable middle-class client. So the lady would be pretty well-dressed, but not in the equivalent of Prada right. or Hermes. <laughs> what do you, do you have an opinion on what the next sort of revolutionary restaurants or restaurants perhaps that will have an effect on the future? Have you thought about that for the now? I have, but I would say that all of my ideas are like most futurologists based on what's happening now rather than on something that I have clairvoyantly read in the future. (laughs) Certainly changes in casual dining, including fast food, the sort that are being put into effect by Chipotle or Shake Shack. That is quality ingredients, more focus on quality, uh, while at the same time a fast delivery, many branches and convenience. I would say Asian influence, on the order of Bennu in San Francisco, mm-hmm. uh, rediscovery of local ingredients, local methods of cooking, regional varieties of plants and animals, the sort of thing that's being done by Husk in Charleston and Nashville, where they've revived old brands of rice, for right. example, or garlic of the sort that used to be raised in the South, or foraging for pawpaws or poke salad, things that were almost forgotten. Mm. And internationally, that seems like it is the case as well. People looking to those ingredients that are readily available, sorry, that are more available in that regionality aspect as opposed to the, the grand influence that significant French uh, moments of French culture had over periods of time within the restaurant scene. Yes, I think that's right. So rather than having a kind of international standard, everybody has truffles, mm-hmm. everybody has foie gras. It is partly the path outlined by people like Rene Redzepi in Copenhagen. Right. Denmark doesn't seem like a great territory to forage things compared to the Mediterranean, uh, but they do have 100-plus kinds of horseradish <laughs> and all sorts of things that sea buckthorn, things mm. that are delicious but that people didn't really know about or maybe uh, older people or people familiar with the land knew mm. about but certainly hadn't penetrated into the cities. So I think you're seeing some of the same thing. Uh, We don't have 103 varieties of horseradish here, but we do have lots of interesting uh, things in different regions. So that trend towards reviving regions, I would say, we'll see more of in the 
decades to come. Paul, thank you so much for, for sharing your book with us today. It's been I, a pleasure. I, Thank I, you, Joel. I appreciate it. Uh, the book is 10 Restaurants That Changed America. The author is Paul Friedman. Uh, listen, it is, a, is it a book? It's a book that has the 10 restaurants for sure, but then there's all of that connective information when you get to find out about a chef or a period of time and then where they went or how it led to something else. And I think that that idea, not only of regionality, but of restaurant history is so incredibly important when we think of our modern restaurant industry. Just think about it. If you, if you look at, I don't know stars restaurant and you think of pat coletto or if you think of jeremiah tower or any of these individuals that have trained chefs that come after them and open marvelous establishments later like a chef thomas keller then Corey lee and banu think about these people these individuals and all of this interesting information and and just a little bit of gossip i'm joel more food wine and travel in the next edition of dining around follow me at joel riddell and at dining around and certainly on diningaround.com